Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. I hope everyone had an awesome Hanukkah. I filled up a little bit too early on the oil mitzvah, so I really am loaded up on the latkes and the donuts early on, and by the end, I had to kind of just uh, hold off on those, but it was a very nice uh, time with my family, and um special to see my little ones really learning how to say the blessings and really getting into it and definitely getting into the presence. Um, And um, today we have an interesting guest with us. She's quite fascinating, actually. She's very stereotype debunking. Um, She is a Haredi, or also uh, you could describe it as ultra-Orthodox mother of 11. She's getting a PhD in Bar-Ilan University in philosophy. She's recently written a book on uh, gender issues in Judaism that is getting praise both from traditional Jewish, uh, you know, sources and people, but also has gotten some attention from the, you know, academic uh, feminist sphere. Um, And it's a challenging topic, you know, how do we grapple with you know, women and Judaism issues, I know for myself personally, um, my whole life I would, I think, describe myself as a feminist if we're going to use the term without getting too loaded, but just believing that women should live with choice. I mean, that's, I think, in the most basic sense. There's all different types of feminism, but um, since I was a child, I mean, I believe really, you know, all people should live uh, self-actualized existences. And I was that kid in Hebrew school. Um, it was before I believed in God, I think, but I thought that we should refer to God as she because, you know, shouldn't that be fair and even? And so I was definitely had a, a spirit that, you know, things should be fair and, and equal and, you know, for the women. And And um, I was raised to believe that Orthodox Jews and Orthodoxy was backwards and subjugated women. And it was one of the things that I was warned against as I began my journey into uh, an Orthodox lifestyle. You know, don't don't be a part of that. They treat women badly. They're second class citizens. and the first time I saw a machitza, a divider, um, at a prayer space was at the Western Wall when I was 13 years old. And I was enraged that, you know, how dare these men, you know, uh, erect this wall and hold us women back. And what I saw from the lifestyle and from just, you know, Orthodox Jews in practice was so much respect um, and so much nice, you know, treatment, fair treatment of women um, within everyday Orthodox Jewish life that even if I didn't have an answer for every last issue that came up, um, I felt like it was a place where I was cherished and I was valued as a woman. Um, And so that was, you know, kind of how I, uh, you know, in in a nutshell, without writing a whole book, uh, sort of came to terms with, um, you know, Orthodox view and treatment of women. It was just very simply that I saw women being treated well, and in many cases actually better than they were treated in secular society. Um, But we're going to hear today from a woman who's uh, spent a lot of time thinking about this and studying a whole lot of sources, and we're going to bring Miriam Cosman onto the line today. Hello, Miriam. I would be saying uh, good morning, but since uh, you're calling in from Israel, it's actually good evening for you, isn't it? Right. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. How how was your Hanukkah? Beautiful, really, really beautiful. Anything uh, special that you do in Israel? Any special Israeli traditions or <laughs> other than Sufganiyot? You mean? Yeah, well, maybe we did that a lot here too. I guess we're all yeah. just uh, heavy on the Sufganiyot. Right. 
So um, I was uh, giving a little bit of an intro before you came on. Um, you're a Haredi mother of 11. Um, you live in B'nai Brak. Uh, you're getting a PhD in philosophy from Bar Ilan. You've written a book now on uh, gender issues. Um, can you tell our, our viewers, our listeners today, how uh, you sort of got on this path? It's probably uh, atypical, but how did you know, you end up where you are today, both in terms of your Jewish background, educationally, how, how did you get to where you are today? Mm-hmm. So uh, I grew up in a very regular Orthodox yeshivish home. I actually grew up in Baltimore. I went to Beis Yaakov of Baltimore. But my home was the kind of home that we were encouraged to ask a lot of questions. And, you know, we would have, there was sort of like nothing that you couldn't challenge. I remember once we had a discussion at the Shabbos table with how would you, about how would you live your life if a, if a note just suddenly came down from heaven that you don't have to keep Torah. Like, what would you do? How would that change your life? And it was just an example of that. And also, you know, going to school in, in Baltimore at the time, that was the only um, Jewish school in Baltimore, basically. And, um, you know, we had a full range of different types of people in the class. There were girls that were Shomer Shabbos, there were girls who didn't keep Shabbos, and we were all, you know, part of the same. So it was, it was sort of like a very open kind of um, life. And then, uh, then after I got married and I moved to Israel, we moved to B'nai Brak because my husband was studying here. And um, somebody asked me to, um, to reach out to, some, uh, to the university students that were studying at Tel Aviv University, the overseas students. And then I got started teaching, um, teaching Jewish thought and philosophy to, uh, to um, university students. And today I work, uh, I work for an organization called Nefesh UD, which is a huge, huge organization. We have about 6,000 students in the program. We have, a pro- we have like a center near all the different universities in Israel. And I, um, I work there as a lecturer, so every day of the week I'm in a different place. We have a center near Haifa University, near the Technion, Be'er Sheva, near Tel Aviv University. So I spend um, a good part of my week, and many of my, actually many of my Shabbosos during the year, we have seminars with my students. And I think that um, being, you know, the combination of coming from this kind of open background where you could think about everything and being very intimately involved with uh, people who look at the world in a completely different way made me look at a lot of issues in Judaism from a different perspective and want to understand them on a deeper level. Mm-hmm. So how did your own, so you mentioned how you are teaching others. Where did you, how did, where did you fit the education in with the 11 kids? How, how did that um, happen? <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, it's, you know, you say 11 kids, it sounds so dramatic, but it's not like they were all little at the same time. I have, you know, my youngest is 10, my oldest is, uh, I think, 31 or 32, something along those lines. And, uh, and I'm just, I'm, I'm an intellectual. I like learning. It was something I always did. I always found time for it. I always, you know, made time to learn. I always went to sleep with a bunch of sperm next to my bed. And um, in recent years, now, you know, also the, um, the teaching was, a very, was made a very challenging. I always had to prepare, so that forced me to really delve into things. And... Um, it wasn't like it was, you know, it was something that I, it's just, I'm like a fish in water when, you know, that's really my natural place. And, uh, and uh, I just, I found that I made the time for it. That people do find time for what they want to do, even if they have big families. Sure. sure and, sure. I, you know, I, my children are part of it. I, you know, they all, we have a lot of discussions about this issue. They, you know, this book that I just put out about gender is something that um, my kids basically could tell you the whole book. Uh, you know, they've heard it a million times. They've discussed it. We've, you know, it's, it's been something that we, uh, you know, we, it's like sort of a family kind of thing. Was the book sort of in development for 
a bunch of years before it you began writing it? Is that kind of how it happened, or? Yeah, well, I've been thinking. I would say I've been thinking about these, this topic ever since I was, you know, a teenager, probably. But the actual writing of the book, I've been working on it for about ten years, and it's really, um, it's been a process. You know, it's been a process of. Uh, I can't say, you know, the it's it was it, it's a development. A lot of that, the what ended up in the book, I didn't know ten years ago. You know, it was really like um, I, I actually think that the world in general is moving towards. Um, there's much more access to the deeper aspect of Torah. And um, if you listen just to even, you know, basic shiurim that are going on all over the place, you'll hear a lot more people are talking about Kabbalistic sources, and not necessarily that they're learning Kabbalah, but they're using sources that base themselves on Kabbalah. And um, a lot of, I, feel, I felt like it was like a process that I was sort of piecing things together. I started out with a question. I started out with a particular um, direction, and then as I would say that during these past 10 years, it was sort of like pieces of the puzzle kept falling into place. I did a lot, a lot of learning on my own, and I had certain mentors that I, you know, I spent a lot of time listening to, to them and to listening to their approach to life, and then going back to the sources and seeing how did they get to this idea, from where, where did this actually come from, and then trying to put it together. You know, my book, I think, is very, very groundbreaking in its approach to gender, but it's not new. I think that the only thing that's new about it is that it's like these are ideas that maybe people were aware of, but nobody put it together in a package that was called gender. There's a lot of concepts that people have been talking about, you know, about what Shabbos is, about what Olam Haba is, about, but when you take all those pieces together and put it under the topic called gender, so it, it, um, it becomes like, you know, it's like a, a very, very new way of, of looking at gender. So it was sort of years that the ideas were sort of floating around in your mind, but then 10 years ago, was the book in your mind at least complete at that point? Did you feel like you had enough sources or enough of sort of a, a vision from beginning to middle to end to put something together? Or even as you were writing it, you were still trying to answer some of the questions that you were struggling with? I think that I thought I knew where I was headed 10 years ago and, you know, nine years ago and eight years ago. Like, I would very, very often be in, like, a state of, like, tremendous excitement. Like, oh, wow, this is such a new idea. It's going to fit in so perfectly. And look, that's another piece of the puzzle. And then when I learned the next part, I would think to myself, my goodness, well, how could I have thought that this was a whole picture? And I'm sure that that's true as far as today is concerned also. Like, I almost couldn't. I, the book was, took such a long, long time to write, and I've been working on it so intensely for such a long time because it was very hard to just finish it and say, okay, I'm not going to be able to cover every single point. I'm not going to be able to close every single, uh, you know, question here. I'm just going to put out what I have because I think it's it's exciting and beautiful just the way it is. But so I would say that, um, you know, it, it's it's... It's it's like a revelation. I know that sounds dramatic, but I sort of feel like there's it's been a process of revelation. For sure. No, as you're delving into something, you know, ideas kind of pop in and things that you're struggling with and clarity comes. I, I very much relate to that. So we didn't even say the name of it. It's the circle, the arrow, and the spiral. Did I get that right? Circle, arrow, spiral, exploring gender and Judaism. So now what's different about this book is that if you wanted to kind of simplify things, I think you would look at more progressive groups as, you know, viewing the gender-related uh, issues in Judaism as being chauvinistic, backwards, that sort of a thing. I think most Orthodox Jews would say that it's different but equal. And then you take a different approach in this book. Could you explain a little bit about what your approach is uh, to the readers, uh, to, to, to our listeners? Yeah. So um, I... I, I 
I think that um, the reason I wrote the book is that the different, you know, one of my motivating forces was that different but equal approach didn't really speak to me very much because I don't, I want to qualify what I mean by this. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, I think that women and men are equal. They're equal in a Jewish court of law, and in an ultimate sense, they're definitely equal before God, you know, and a person, a person is really judged by how, how, they, how much they reach out to Hashem and how close they are to Him. So it makes no difference if you're man and woman or woman in that level. But there is no question. I mean, I always found it difficult when people would say that men and women are basically equal. They're really equal, but they're just different. Because there's basic sources where you, sh- you see that they're not equal. I mean, right there in, in the story of creation, it says that He will rule over her, and that doesn't sound so equal to me. And there's other halachos that are, you know, that make it quite, you know, there's, there are differences between men and women. Why is a man allowed to marry more than one wife biblically? And a, even, if, even if today he's not, and a woman is not, why is, uh, you know, uh, a woman betraying the marriage so much more stringent than when a man betrays it? Why do you make a different bracha when a boy is born or when a girl is born? There's a lot of questions. Okay. So um, I never really felt that, you know, and I also, and another thing was that I felt that a lot, a lot of the literature that was coming out was sort of classifying women as, um, homemakers. You know, the women are the ones that are at home with the children, taking care of the house, and the man is the one that uh, goes out there. He learns Torah, and he, um, you know, puts oil in the car and things like that. And I just didn't feel like it resonated really with today. And I don't think that it's, I think that when you have, when you try and uh, um, explain gender by talking about role, about roles, like, you know, the man does this and the woman does that, you're in trouble when you're in a society where that just doesn't work. And I think we're in a society where it doesn't work. I mean, if you're going to say that, you know, being a woman is, is being home with the kids and being an Asia's Kyle, et cetera, et cetera. So what happens, like, when she works? Let's just, for an example, she works and uh, say she's a lawyer and she comes home from her office at 637 and maybe her husband's learning and he happens to be home before her and maybe he picked the kids up from the daycare and he made stuff, whatever it is. There's, or even if he's working at a job that gives him more time at home. So then what is she? She's not, you know, that makes, or, or even when you talk about being a woman as like, you know, personality traits, like she's more emotional, he's more rational, just it doesn't really fit with reality. So, um, so I wasn't comfortable with that approach, and um, and I also felt like there was an element here of lack of equality, which bothered me. And um, so my approach t- says something very different. I basically want to say that there is a lack of equal- equality between men and women, and we see that straight in the story of you know in the Garden of Eden. You know when they were when when after they sinned, God said to the woman. Um, you will yearn for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, what's important to remember there is that that was a curse. It wasn't a positive thing. It's not good that he will rule over you. Hashem wasn't saying, that's the way I want my world to be. That wasn't the way he wanted the world to be. The world was that Adam and Eve were created equal. But this was a result of the sin. So what I want to say is that it's not, people say, oh, well, that's the way it is. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's the way it is. God was sort of saying, this is a description of reality. Once you leave the Garden of Eden, you should know that he is going to rule over you. But that's not a positive situation. Same and with pain and childbirth. Same with having to, uh, you know, work the soil. These are all part of the different curses of, of after the sin. Right. But but my point is is that uh, what, what I what I want to say, and I think that this is this is something that's a little bit, um, you know, that that really changes the whole picture. Is that um, in my book I explain how the fem- the the female force and the male force they're, they they represent they're represented in many different ways in the world, not just with men and women, but in one way the female force represents the concept of equality, of mutuality, of of uh, equal of uh, 
a real relation, a real equal relationship, a real love relationship. And um, when we went out into the world, we went into a sort of a male world, which is a world of progress and accomplishment and striving and trying to have more and to get more. And that the female voice has always been sort of like a underlying um, uh, conscience under the surface that's constantly pulling humanity back to a place of that love and intimacy and equality and exclusivity, etc. And, and um, so she may have, she may not be equal in the sense that she's all, her voice is very often. And when I say that she wasn't equal, I don't, I'm not talking about Judaism right now. I'm talking about the world. I mean, the fact is that one, once we left the garden, if you look at history, men did rule over women for thousands of years. And just yeah. with recently, with the feminist movement, has that balance been changing to some level? So he has been ruling over over her, but that's not necessarily positive. And, and throughout that history, she was always there, and she was always pulling in another direction. She was pulling in a direction, I think, a direction of truth. And it's interesting that so I'm saying that, that Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, was a, was a voice that represented the feminine, was, was a situation that represented the feminine voice. Then we went out into a male world. But our goal is to reach that messianic time. It's interesting how Olam you know, the world to come is also referred to as Gan Eden. Like we're working towards a more feminine, we want to reach a more feminine kind of society. Where things um, are balanced and, again, where we have that, that equal footing. Right. Right. So, as this, so for you to come out and say that um, women are, and men are not equal in traditional sources, is that getting you some credibility in the more you know feminist academic circles? Are, are there any uh, surprising places that you thought might not be so pro orthodox approaches that like what you're saying? So, um, you know, I, I would say that you know I, it's interesting that my secular my students they really love the material, but it's um, less from a Jewish perspective. You know, in other words, they don't really, they're less concerned maybe with, uh, you know, is Judaism fair or, or is it not fair? But I, and I, but I think that what they relate to more is that um, this, this paradigm really gives you an opportunity to express your femininity in whatever you do. It, it isn't limiting. It's not like, you know, we're not women just when we're having babies and baking chocolate chip cookies. What, when you're a woman, that's what you are. When you're a man, that's what you are. And it really affects how you live your life on every single level. So in a certain way, I think that a lot of women in the secular world are um, battling this, 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 uh, this kind of... Um, conflict in their lives because they do want to succeed and they want to be good at whatever they're doing just like anybody else just like a man would but there is more of an emphasis on relationships and there is more of a desire for a uh, for a an exclusive committed kind of relationship very often and here what i'm offering them is an opportunity to see the feminine force as something very very valuable one of the things i always say when i talk about it with my students is that if i had to say what the role of a woman is in Judaism, it's to remain loyal to that voice in whatever whatever she's doing. In other words, to remain loyal to that voice. I feel like this, the Western society is so incredibly masculine. Yeah. You know, like like I mean, I'll give you an example. Just like let's say the idea of exclusivity. So, from a Jewish perspective, ex- the desire for exclusivity is a very very feminine desire. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the story of uh, the Garden of Eden, it says that that um, the woman gave the man to eat after she ate. And Rashi brings there like a really awful kind of statement where he says that the reason she gave him to eat was because she knew that she had eaten and she was going to die. And if she dies, he's going to marry another woman. Hmm. Now that sounds like really awful. Right. <laughs> you know, right. but he, she would do that to him. But on a deeper level, 
what she was saying is, I want an exclusive relationship. Now, from a male perspective, and a wet, you know, the more if if you want to be progressing and doing and accomplishing, the more relationships you have, the better off you are. So she's always been the voice that's been calling for exclusivity, mm-hmm. and I think that in the secular world, that voice is completely and totally um, devalued. You know, basically, what 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 set, what women are being told is, if you want exclusivity, if you want commitment, you're just going to have to. You're, you know, well, that's, it's, that's a pipe dream. It's never going to happen. You're just going to have to be more like a man and relate to relationships the way men do, which is very often, you know, more superficially, less committed, et cetera, et cetera. And here, I'm offering them an opportunity to see themselves as women who are pulling the world in a direction that's that, a direction of health and a direction of perfection. And this has nothing to do with whether or not you're, you know, frying latkes in the kitchen or whether you're a nuclear physicist. It makes no difference what you're doing. It's how you're doing it. But then the argument would be for men to also be more exclusive and to be a little bit more feminine in that way and not just out conquering the next uh, conquest. Is, is that correct? A hundred percent. I mean, I even think that if you look at it, um, it from this perspective, you can see that in a certain way the, Ju- the Jewish people have the same job as women. I mean, I show that in my book a lot. But there's a tremendous, you know, in the in the Song of Songs in Shir Shirim, that's a like a that's a parable about the relationship between God and the Jewish people. So the Jewish people are the woman in the story, and I, I and I think that that's true on many many levels. That the woman that that the Jewish people are the feminine in the world. They're always the other. Like you know, when woman was created, it's and God said, um, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll, I'll create a, a helpmate opposite him. So the opposite, the other, is the woman. She's always the one that's standing outside saying, let's do it. You know, there's another way to do it. And I think that if you look at Jew- the Jewish people, that's been really their job throughout history to be the other, to, the, to, let's say, Western society, and to constantly be pointing out that the ultimate goal is relationship, the ultimate goal is, is this kind of uh, um, truth, in, in, um, truth in love and, and in relationship. Now, the truth is that when you say be the other or sort of do it differently, it reminds me a little bit of Apple's motto, think different. I feel like nowadays sort of doing things in a different way or a new way is kind of getting more popular to not just sort of go along the standard way, but somehow, you know, have, have a, a new way of looking at things. Would, would you agree? Is that what you're saying? That sort of this trajectory that we're on, to, that we're giving more um, voice now to the other? Is that... Well, I think that postmodern society is, you know, that's really what it, I think postmodern society has been very, very influenced by feminism altogether. And one of, you know, one aspect of feminism is really this idea that, that there are many different voices and that a lot depends on who you are and how you view things. Um, whereas, you know, postmodern, you know, modern comes before postmodern. I think, you know, mo- modern philosophy was very, it was very male oriented. And postmodern is much more feminine. But one of the problems with postmodern society is that it's not enough to, like, just be open to a lot of different ideas and, like, say, you know, well, you know, live and let live, and et cetera. Really, really, um, the way it really should work is that you have to engage with the other ideas. I do think that people are much more open and much more willing to, like, um, hear another viewpoint. And like, for example, our program in, in Nefesh UD, the fact that there's so many thousands of students that are coming to study Judaism with, with Orthodox Haredi people, is part of this postmodern perspective, like, you know, okay, let's hear how they look at the world. But the challenge of anybody who listens, you know, is, is not just to be open-minded, because that's pretty easy. What's, the challenge is, is to engage with the ideas and let the ideas affect you. In other words, to have a discussion, to be in a dialogue with those other ideas, not just to live next to each other and be willing to let the other person live, but to, 
respect the other other ideas enough that you'll you're willing to interact with them and come up with something new as a result of the meeting between where you were coming from and where this other idea is coming from. Now you keep Does talking about the feminism that the feminine that's within us and the masculine, but you mentioned many times in the book that none of us are all one or all the other, that I think people kind of, you know, like uh, bristle at the idea that like I'm all female or all male and they recognize, or the question or even, is this a female trait? Like how, how do we even know? I, I guess with your uh, metaphor of the circle and you say nekeva, uh, female in Hebrew comes from concave. So we're talking about like, this is gets down to a, a physical, uh, you know, representation with a woman versus an arrow is, is a physical representation. I mean, is that, are we looking just back to sort of like basic anatomy or hormones that are making men more, you know, sort of going out to the world okay. and conquering, like kind of how mm-hmm. you're saying these things are feminine and masculine, but where are those things coming from, psychology or philosophy or? Mm-hmm. Okay, so first of all, I mean, you could start off with the very clear idea that the, the only time in history that there really was ever a man who was completely male and a woman that was completely female was at that moment when God took the original androgynous being that the Medrash tells us about and divided it into two and made one Adam and the other one Chava, the other one Eve, right? Mm -hmm. But from that moment on, there really was never a man that was completely male because when Adam and Eve had their first child, let's say it was a boy, Mm -hmm. that boy also had a mother. And their first girl, that girl also had a father. In other words, when you talk about male and female, you're already... Any human being is obviously, you know, a lot, has a lot of both in them. And um, I, I actually think of it sort of like, you know, like a, the tag at the back of your clothing that says 70% polyester, 30% cotton, or whatever it is. Like, yeah. you have different types of percentages. But um, from a Kabbalistic perspective, the word um, Kabbalah means Kabbal to receive, like to sort of receive the Shefa from above. But Kabbalah also has another meaning, and that is a parallel Olamot um, below, like parallel worlds. And from that perspective, the physical world is a parallel or a metaphor of the spiritual world. It's sort of like a, the physical world is sort of like a glove that's covering the hand. Mm-hmm. The hand is the spiritual world and the glove is the physical world. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, um, and really when, the, when, when these, these terms are used in that kind of literature, in the, in the literature that's based more on, like, on, on mystical uh, sources, so when they talk about male and female, they are, they are really using the physical as a model. The physical mm-hmm. meeting between a male and a female, that's mm-hmm. the model. But when you, but, so you use that as the model, and that is what gives you um, a definition of what's male and what's female. But once you've, you've, um, you've attributed those traits to either male or female, you can see very clearly that a lot of women have male traits and a lot of male men have male traits. And even in that kind of literature, they'll even use, they'll sometimes describe a man as having a female kind of um, trait and a woman as having a male kind of trait. It happens very, you know, it's very often that, so in other words, you're using the, the, the physical as a metaphor. It doesn't mean that every man is like this and every woman is like this, um, but it means that, um, you know, that, that the model is very, very important. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, this time just flew by here today. I guess there's just this is a lot of topics and a lot of, uh, you know, interesting things to think about. One thing I'm just curious for my own personal edification, um, and I encourage everyone to, uh, you know, go out and get your book, uh, Circle, Arrow, Spiral, and what, what's the second part of it? If you could remind me again. 
Exploring Gender and Judaism. Exploring Gender and Judaism, I should have it in front of me. I apologize. You can get the first yeah. chapter on Miriam Cosman, K-O-S-M-A-N.com. You can download that for free. Um, so I, I found it very fascinating, you know, the way that you're showing the East is more feminine and the West is more masculine and sort of the, how you're showing that ultimately it's to come to a hybrid, part feminine, part masculine. And then you, in the second half of your book, you apply it to parts of Judaism, trying to understand some of those thornier issues. So I guess my question is, if you could try to sum this up in a couple of minutes if possible, why is there the need to try to solve all these problems? Like in a, in a perfect place, in a perfect world, we would have an answer to issues like, you know, why uh, divorce seems to be imbalanced and, you know, some of the blessings don't seem to be so balanced. But do we need to have an answer to everything or is it okay to just say that, um, you know, we're not going to understand every last aspect of Judaism and Jewish law. And, you know, even beyond gender issues, there are things that are challenging. Um, do you have mm -hmm. anything to say on that? Yes. Yeah, so what I would basically say about this is that obviously that's a very fundamental concept in Judaism that you accept without necessarily understanding. But, um, you know, and that was the Nasev Anishma, will accept the Torah without even reading it. And, you know, that was Avram Avinu, you know, at the Akedah, that he, he, you know, he brought his son as a sacrifice, even though he didn't understand why God was asking this of him. But I also think there's another level to our relationship with God. And I think that understanding really leads to love. And if you notice, you know, that most of the mitzvahs in the Torah are not chukim. They're not mitzvahs. Most of the mitzvahs can be understood. The Rambam talks about that a lot, Maimonides, and and I think that it's really, um, I think that it shows a, a caring when you try and understand. When you say to God, look, I love you, I know that you are perfection, I know that you're justice, but this particular thing just really does not seem just to me. And I want to understand, not because it's not a question of whether I'm going to keep it or whether I'm going to believe in it or whether I'm going to be uh, committed to this, that's understood. But because I'm here in this relationship, I'm turning to you and I'm saying to you, please help me to understand that. And that's why I sort of feel like this writing that I did and this, you know, working through this topic was really sort of, um, it, I, I feel like it was a real gift from God that he allowed me to have a little bit of light in this world of darkness. You know, I feel like um, it's almost like once you're willing to say, it, it's like stage two, like what you're describing is stage one. Stage one is saying, whatever you say, God, I accept it, even if I don't understand it. And after you've done that, though, you sort of, what you're basically saying is, God, I give you a place in my life. I don't have to understand everything that you, that you want from us. I realize that you're God and I'm not God. So you've given God a place in your life. And the minute you do that, then it's almost like you open yourself up to, to, uh, to the relationship with God. And it's almost like a, um, it's, it's almost like a return on that commitment. That you, you know, when, when, when God graces you with a little bit more understanding, I think that it's, 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 there's no question that some things, and even my answers that I gave, I can't say there's such, you know, I don't think everybody who reads them would say, oh, well, that solved all, you know, any issues I might have with the topic. But it's, it's sort of trying to understand the internal integrity of the Torah. And I think that that search for understanding comes from a place of wanting to be closer to Hashem. And I think that that's very valuable and very positive from a Jewish perspective. Thank, but thank you so much. We are unfortunately out of time. I feel like we could have done an hour-long show today. But everyone listening, you should check out miriamcosman.com, um, Circle, Arrow, Spiral, Exploring Gender and Judaism. You can download the first chapter for free. You can purchase it after that. Thank you so much for your time, and, um, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. All the best. All the best.